Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Throughout the season of Easter, the church intentionally abides in a garden full of hope and possibility, wondering what might grow up here and what good can be done now. With these important Easter questions in mind, we find ourselves in a new sermon series that's exploring the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts to try and better understand Jesus' good gospel. Through the lens of these various books, it's our hope to more fully appreciate Jesus' life into which he invites every person. Two weeks ago, we considered the Gospel of Matthew's focus on an epic King Jesus and his revolutionary kingdom. Last week, we considered Mark's suffering servant who reveals suffering and death as part of a larger, a greater, perhaps we can call it a universal pattern. Life and then death. Yes, but death, you see, according to this gospel, is not the end. Rather, death is part of a process that gives way to new life. This morning, we're going to consider the gospel of Luke. Luke is an interesting gospel. Like Matthew, it tells of Jesus' birth. But rather than Matthew's epic birth story of visiting Magi and Herod trying to kill all of the children in flight to Egypt, Luke's birth story has several Christmas songs, visiting shepherds, and Jesus' dedication as a child in the temple. And like Matthew, Luke's gospel also has a genealogy. But again, rather than Matthew's epic genealogy of 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David to exile and 14 generations from exile to the Christ, Luke's genealogy simply begins with Jesus and works its way slowly backward, concluding with these words, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so you see, whereas Matthew's Jesus is the king of the Jews, Luke's Jesus is the Son of God. Luke's Jesus is the human one. Luke's Jesus is the divine human in whom we're invited to see our very own humanity. And perhaps this is why Jesus' gospel in Luke is so very human. I love this. I love it because the gospel is often made out to be very, very heady or very feely. Hetty, believe these things about yourself, and then uh, believe these things about God. And then, if you believe these things about yourself, and you believe these things about God, then you are quote-unquote saved. And feely. Feel these things about yourself, and feel these things about the world, and feel these things about about God, and and then you are quote-unquote saved. Think these things and feel these things. 
Now, to be clear, I'm not trying to diminish the importance of what we think and feel. However, a gospel that is solely based on thoughts and feelings is absent of oomph. Oomph. (laughs) I'm using that this morning as an actual word. What I mean by it is impact. What I mean by it is transformation. What I mean by it is a very human, a very fleshy reality in which what we think and feel is actually made manifest through the lives that we live. And so, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus walks into a synagogue, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke then tells us, Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? Joseph's son? Well, yes. And as the genealogy in Luke chapter 3 told us, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the human one, the son, who in Luke declares a gospel that is wonderfully, magnificently human. Good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight to the blind, the oppressed go free, the favor of the Lord upon everyone. Now, if you're strong and healthy and straight and employed and male and white, or if you're free and have access to health care and see yourself represented in culture and politics and places of power, then there is a temptation to try and make Luke's gospel into thinking and feeling the right kinds of things because you don't need the kind of good news, release, sight, freedom, and favor that Jesus is declaring. And yet, yet, Jesus' gospel in Luke demands oomph. It demands it. Jesus' gospel in Luke demands the good news of release and sight and freedom and favor until every person is healthy and whole and free and truly, unequivocally favored. Of course, this means that there is much work to be done. There is much gospel needed. In fact, there is so much gospel needed that it can feel overwhelming, can't it? If we were actually meeting together this morning in person at EcoTrust, and and you were all out in front of me sitting in those blue, plastic, beloved chairs that we have not been able to sit upon for over a year, if we were all together, I would have asked if you have felt overwhelmed this last year. If you felt overwhelmed this last year by sickness or by injustice or by economic disparity or by... Uh, incarceration, or prison systems, or ecological disaster, if you've been overwhelmed by any of these things, will you please raise your hand? My guess is that I would see every hand in the room raised. And that would make me want to ask another question, which is, what do you do when you are overwhelmed? What do you do when you're overwhelmed? I mean, perhaps you wouldn't use these words, but I'm guessing you may feel what these words are getting at. Cut it 
down. Just cut it down. That person who doesn't get it, cut that person down. Those people who are making things worse, just cut those people down. And when it happens, when him, her, they, the enemies of Luke's good gospel are cut down, it is altogether easy in every generation and for every tribe to think good. Good. God got them. From Luke chapter 13. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or how about those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, then you can cut it down. What an interesting little story. Uh, This passage breaks into two sections, and both sections are unique to the book of Luke. Neither can be found anywhere else in the Bible. And, And the historical events about Pilate mixing blood with Galilean sacrifices, and the part about a tower falling and killing 18 people, Neither of these details have been found in extra-biblical literature. The content in these two sections are here and only here. And Luke intentionally places these sections side by side. And so I'm going to take a moment to look at each section individually before putting them together so that we can see what it is that Luke is attempting to show us. Uh, Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 13, people from the crowd informed Jesus about some Galileans who were worshiping the Lord until the Judean governor named Pilate killed them. And to make matters even worse, we're told here that Pilate mixed the Galilean sacrifices to God with their own spilt blood. This is a sickening event. And Jesus' response to hearing about this event is curious. He merely asks a question and then makes a statement. He asks, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? And then his statement, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Here Jesus is making a couple points. Point number one, Do not think that these Galileans suffered in this way because they were somehow worse than other people in the world. And point number two, worry about yourself. Repent or face the same ending. Now, this is disturbing, I know, but please, please stick with me. Jesus goes on to say, How about those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Jesus is being masterful here as he interacts with the crowd. 
He does exactly what those from the crowd just did. He brings up a contemporary event, a tower falling over and killing 18 people living in Jerusalem, and then he makes two almost identical points. Point number one, do not think that these 18 were killed in this way because they were worse offenders than others. And point number two, worry about yourself. Repent or face the same ending. Now, there's disagreement about what repent and perish refer to in this section. Some argue that Jesus is saying, repent from your sins or you will perish in hell. But that's a stretch because Jesus isn't talking about suffering in the afterlife here. He's clearly talking about perishing in this present life. He's talking about death today. Here's what I mean. The crowd shares some news with Jesus, and Jesus totally ignores the horror of the news to ask, Do you think this happened because they were worse than anybody else? Jesus then shares his own news about a falling tower, again, totally ignores the horror of the news to ask again, Do you think this happened because they were worse than anyone else? In other words, Hey, you think that when bad things happen to people that it's God's judgment upon the wicked. Well, guess what? You're wrong. Repent, or you too will perish. That's the point being made in this first section. Now, second section, chapter 13, verses 6 to 9, Jesus tells a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. He said to the gardener, See here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Simple enough. The owner of a vineyard plants a fig tree in his vineyard, but for three years it doesn't produce a thing, so he says something that seems very sensible. He says to the gardener, this fig tree hasn't produced a thing for three years. It's taking up valuable space. Cut it down. But the gardener says to the owner, sir, let it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll put manure on it. And if it bears fruit next year, great. But if not, cut it down then. Now. There's disagreement about who is who in this parable. Some say the owner is God and the gardener is Jesus. God has had it with sinners, but Jesus intercedes. Others say that the owner is Jesus and the gardener is God. Jesus has been ministering for three years and there's very little fruit, so he's ready to judge, but God intercedes. But still others say that the owner is the crowd who is certain that when bad things happen to people, it is God's judgment on the wicked. And then there's the fig tree. Almost everyone is in agreement about the fig tree. It represents wickedness. To be clear, we don't know whose wickedness it represents. Maybe it's Israel's wickedness. Maybe it's the crowd's wickedness. Maybe it's your wickedness. Perhaps it's my wickedness. But undeniably, this fig tree is a metaphor that represents stagnant, unrepentant wickedness. Now, We could spend a lot of time trying to definitively decide who is who and what is what, but to do so would be to try and solve the wrong thing. The point of this parable is really very clear. Before cut-it-off judgment, there is a year of labor on behalf of the barren fig tree in the garden. A year. 
a year of sweating and digging and mixing manure into the soil surrounding the desolate fig tree. And if it comes to life, it lives. But if it does not come to life, cut it down. Okay, so we've made some necessary progress here. In the first section, we learned that when bad things happen, it isn't to be confused as some kind of divine judgment on bad people. And in the second section, we learned that before cut it off judgment, there is a year of laboring in the garden. So, so how do these two sections work together? Well, Jesus makes it clear that the crowd thinks that when bad things happen to people, that it's God's judgment. And so I suppose that if we were to sit in on the crowd's conversation just after they received news about Pilate's murder or the falling tower, we'd probably hear them say something like, I wonder what those people were guilty of, or they obviously sinned, or they absolutely got what they deserved. This sounds very similar to the disciples in John chapter 9 after they passed a blind man and said, uh, a teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, there was this assumption in Jesus' day that bad things happen to bad people. The paradigm was clear. And going further, many believe that this is the way of God. God makes bad things happen to bad people. Now, say that over and over again, year after year, generation after generation. Believe it deeply, firmly in the bottom of your heart. God makes bad things happen to bad people. God makes bad things happen to bad people. God makes bad things happen to bad people. Got it? Okay. Now, imagine that you're out and about in God's green earth and you come across a bad person, however you want to define a bad person. You happen upon a hardened, calloused, barren fig tree of a person. Question. In that moment, what do you think? What do you feel? What do you pray? If we're being honest with our overwhelmed selves, perhaps it sounds something like this. Cut it down. Just cut it down. I mean, that's the way of God, right? Solve kingdom problems by way of amputation, right? Onward, Christian soldiers. Scream, swing, spit, slay, cut it down. Of course, there are other methods. I give up. I quit. I'm done. I will no longer waste a moment of my life on this person or on this problem. It is forever barren. Cut it down. Now. Just for a moment, let yourself go there. Who do you see needing to be cut down? Who do you maybe even imagine being cut down? We've all been there, I think, especially this year. Mad as hell. Exhausted. Overwhelmed. And so with axe in hand and a world of frustration in our hearts, we, we raise the axe ready to cut. When all of a sudden, according to the story, we're told, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and put manure on it. A year? It's already been three years. And manure, what's the good in that? And you're right, manure is not a quick fix leading to immediate results. It's as slow and as simple as some of Jesus' other ingredients for life, like yeast and salt and seeds and light. Manure, 
It's dead waste that's teeming with life. Manure, it contributes to the fertility of soil by adding organic matter and nutrients such as enzymes, microorganisms, and nitrogen that are trapped by the bacteria. Higher organisms then feed on the fungi and bacteria in a chain of life that comprises a soil food web. Cut it down? That is the way of God? No. Leave it alone for one more year, dig around it, and put manure upon it. That, you see, is the way of God. Writing against the fallacy that agriculture may be understood and dealt with as an industry, poet, environmental activist, cultural critic, and farmer, farmer Wendell Berry writes these words. The assumption that agriculture may be understood and dealt with as an industry is false. First of all, because agriculture deals with living things and biological processes, whereas the materials of industry are not alive and the processes are mechanical. That agriculture can produce only out of the lives of living creatures means that it cannot for very long escape the qualitative standard that is, in addition to productivity, efficiency, decent earning, and so on, it must have health. Thus, the farmer differs from the industrialist in that the farmer is necessarily a nurturer, a preserver of the health of creatures. These words by Barry aren't just agriculturally sound, they are theologically sound. This, you see, is the way of God. God is not an industrialist leveling the planet and erecting a kingdom. God is a farmer in a garden cultivating life. Day by day, week by week, month by month, and season by season. And the way to new life in a garden according to a farmer? Well, as Barry puts it, the farmer differs from the industrialist in that the farmer is necessarily a nurturer, a preserver of the health of creatures. Or, as Jesus puts it, not cut it down, but leave it alone for one more year and dig around it and put manure upon it. <sighs> Beloved church, this has been a terribly difficult year. Many of us are exhausted. Many of us are overwhelmed by all of the good still yet to be done. And many of us are sick and tired of those who oppose good and who hinder good. But the good we long for will not happen when there are axes in our hands. That is a path to devastation, not new creation. Jesus' wonderfully human invitation is to patient work. Jesus' wonderfully human invitation is to faithful work. Jesus' wonderfully human invitation is to audacious work, believing that this person and that person, this problem and that problem can, with enough effort, with enough determination, with enough fidelity, be raised to new life. Jesus' wonderfully human invitation is to take all that we have and all that we are, the manure in this passage. And to, as thoughtfully and as strategically as possible, give ourselves away to the work of release and of sight and of freedom and of favor until every person is healthy and whole and free and truly favored. May it be so, and let us pray.
my shepherd and your shepherd. Shepherd our overwhelmed hearts into audacious hope and faithful work that rouses new life in this world, even now. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.